Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hi, welcome to the first episode of The Victory Kitchen. I'm really excited to have you here. For this episode, I'm going to be talking a little bit about how I got into World War II rationing. Also, we're going to be learning the basics of what rationing is and how the United States implemented it. In later episodes, I'm going to be delving more into each topic individually. So today we're just kind of scratching the surface. Finally, I'm going to highlight an awesome cookbook from my ration cookbook collection called What Do We Eat Now? A Guide to Wartime Housekeeping. And definitely stick around because I'm going to tell you all about three recipes I made and I'll be sharing with you from this cookbook. My journey into World War II rationing uh, came about in a roundabout kind of way. When I was a teenager, I volunteered at a local historical society museum and at one point, they had a World War II exhibit focusing on local World War II history. And this is the first time I'd been, ever been exposed to that time period in history. And I was immediately fascinated and fell in love with the 1940s in wartime. I read every single children's fiction book about World War II in my library, and I was just hooked. Then for a really long time after that, I guess I got interested in other history stuff, it wasn't until much, much later into my adult life that I rediscovered my love for World War II and the 1940s, and I've always loved to bake and cook, so naturally, I guess, I turned to just studying wartime rationing. At the time, I had a history blog, which I still do, and I decided to try an experiment. I was going to try one ration recipe every week for an entire year. And I focused on American and British recipes. That was quite the experience. I learned so much. The biggest thing I learned was that wartime recipes will always surprise you. Things that seem disgusting at first glance are actually pretty good. And things that you think might work out are actually pretty gross. <laughs> so during this experiment, I started my wartime ration cookbook collection. And I haven't stopped since then. I just love it. I feel like I can never learn enough from the food culture from this time period. So that's why we're here today. I wanted to be able to share with everyone the amazing recipes and cookbooks from this incredible time period in American history. Let's get down to the basics. What was rationing? I found two different definitions online that I really liked. The first one is rationing is a fixed allowance of provisions of food, especially for soldiers or sailors or for civilians during a shortage. The second definition that I liked says that rationing is the controlled distribution of scarce resources, goods, or services. And both those definitions together really form a great idea of what rationing was. There was a lot of scarcity during the war, and this was the case all over the world. Rationing was just a way of controlling the scarce food resources and other essential resources that people used so that there would be hopefully enough to go around and enough to take care of the soldiers that were fighting. 
So why did the United States ration their food? Well, there are several reasons for this. The first most obvious one is that thousands of soldiers joined up after Pearl Harbor was bombed to serve in the military. So all of a sudden, the government had thousands of mouths to feed, and not just at the army bases, on the ships, but they also had to provide food rations for them out in the field. Related to that, we were also sending food over to our allies. This had been happening for some time with England because they had had trouble getting importing their food due to the threat of German U-boats. But as the war went on, a second reason that we rationed was that there are certain imports that were difficult to come by, like sugar. This was due to the fact that there was Japanese interference in the Pacific, where a lot of our sugar came from, and also a lot of German U-boat interference in the Atlantic. So a lot of the normal shipping lanes were threatened by war. In addition to that, all these ships that normally transported civilian goods, you know, peacetime goods, were now being used for transporting military goods. We were also sending food to Europe. Another thing I learned about recently was that some food commodities were used in the production of war materials, like synthetic rubber or plastics. And I had never thought about this before. I mean, I know that they use soy to make certain things that they used in wartime. But I just never thought about um, things like even sugar, that they use the alcohol from sugar for bombs and even for making synthetic rubber tires for airplanes. A third reason why the United States rationed was that it was a way of fairly distributing limited resources to the civilian public. One last note that I wanted to mention was that World War II rationing was not the first time the United States had used food rationing. The first time that they used a rationing system was during World War I, but the difference was that it was voluntary. They really appealed to people's sense of patriotism using propaganda to encourage people to use less grain, find alternative sources of wheat. They encouraged, you know, meatless Mondays so that the American people would eat less meat and more could go to the troops and to our allies. On many levels, it was successful. We were able to send thousands and millions of pounds of food over to the starving people in Europe and feed our soldiers. But it wasn't a perfect system. It had that situation where people who were more wealthy could clear out the shelves or just buy more things. And the people who did not have as much money just were kind of left out in the cold a little bit. They had victory gardens that helped. But, you know, it just because it was voluntary, not everyone went along. There was also a rampant black market. All of these issues that they dealt with, they learned from. So when World War II comes around, they already had learned their lessons and they implemented a different system. And this is where we come to how did it all work? How did the World War II ration system in America function? Well, the U.S. government's Office of Price Administration set the ration point values for rationed goods. They also set price ceilings to lock down on any inflation. The government issued four ration books during the course of the war. The ration books would have the name of the person on the front along with their address and even physical features to prevent fraud from happening. Each member of the family would receive a book, including babies. The only way that these points could be redeemed was if it was by a member of the family. So inside these books, they had little coupons that could be torn out by the grocer. There were four books issued during the course of the war. Book one was issued in May 1942. 
this was for mostly sugar, but it did include a few stamps for shoes. And then later in uh, November of 1942, it was for coffee. Then in March of 1943, Ration Book 2 came out. This was when the bulk of the rest of the foods to be rationed in the war were rationed. This included meats, fats, cheeses, dairy, processed foods like things that were canned, bottled, or frozen. So this ration book was quite a bit different from the first book. The first book was black and white, and they were just numbered coupons. The second book, the coupons were colored, and they also had a number letter system. Each person was given 64 red points per month and 48 blue points per month. The red points were to redeem the meat, fish, and dairy, while the blue points were for the processed foods. Now, you might wonder why were the processed foods rationed? Well, these were easily transported overseas, like if you think of the classic spam. Another reason was that the materials used to can these things like tin, glass, and even paper were rationed items. They were needed for the military. It was very limited what you could buy packaged in those materials. Later in 1943, in September, Ration Book 3 came out. This included eight pages of stamps, four were for meat rationing, and four were for a clothing program that was never implemented by the government. So some of those stamps were validated for shoe rationing instead. Finally, we have Book 4, which came out in late 1943, and this was for just food and other commodities Because the ration books weren't just used for food rationing, they were used for other materials. And because of the number letter system, the government could tell you this particular coupon was for shoes. This particular coupon was, you know, for stove fuel. An interesting aspect of ration book four was this was when the ration tokens came out. There is a really neat OPA poster that explains to civilians in the grocery store how this new system is going to work. So all the red and blue stamps in Ration Book 4 were worth 10 points each. On the poster, it says that five blue stamps become valid February 27th. 8A, 8B, 8C, 8D, and 8E. And these are for processed foods. Then three red stamps became valid beginning February 27th. 8A, 8B, and 8C, that's for meat and dairy. Then new stamps became valid every two weeks after that. Red and blue tokens were worth one point each. These red and blue tokens were used to make change for the red and blue stamps, but only when purchases were made. Before this point, a homemaker or anyone doing the shopping had to carefully figure out how they were going to buy their rationed goods using these stamps, and they would have to get it exactly right. Otherwise, they could lose some ration point values. So let's say you wanted to buy a ration box of Kellogg's cornflakes. If it was 13 points and you only had enough to make a combination of 14 points, you had to decide either to do without the cereal or to lose that extra ration point because they didn't offer any kind of ration point change. This was very tricky because the ration point values would change and you never knew exactly when that was going to happen. The OPA were the ones that controlled these point values and so sometimes you'd make your plan, go to the store, and oh no, they changed. So you have to make do some quick math at the store to figure out, well, how can I get my ration points to work now? Very confusing, very complicated. 
So when these tokens came out, it really was a game changer because all of a sudden then the grocer could give you that one token change and then that ration token was good. It had no expiration and you could use it for whenever. That way you would get all the value out of your ration points that you had been given. Now, how would people know about all these changes, about what ration points were for what weeks? Well, there were ration calendars in the newspapers. They would announce in the newspapers, for this coming two weeks, you can use XYZ, these ration points. And then you could make your plan according to that. While on the surface, this system might seem not too bad, pretty straightforward. It really wasn't. It was it was often confusing. There were sometimes rumors that would fly around like something was going to go to go up in price or up in ration point value and so people would rush to the store and try and get their share. People would wait and when they saw the delivery truck go by, they'd race to the store to be the first in line for, you know, whatever things were out of stock. So, I mean, it It was a time where you really had to be creative and use what was, you know, available at the store and what you could grow in your victory garden. And through this way, the American people were fed and everyone had a fair share. The black market did exist, and we will probably go into this in a later episode more in depth. But um, there is a really great government movie that I found on YouTube that talks about the black market and how unpatriotic it is. And if you use the black market, you're really helping Hitler. That's really what the bottom line was in the propaganda about this. But in the movie, they also talk about how you should never try to make deals under the table with your butcher or with the grocer. It just doesn't help anybody. Rationing is a really fascinating subject within the context of the wartime period. And many times I wonder, could we implement something like this today? I don't really think we could. I I think the atmosphere at the time lended itself to this kind of a system and it worked. The American people through their making do, doing without, and buying war bonds, they really funded the war. They helped feed our soldiers and our allies, and in this way, they were able to help achieve victory. We have finally reached the part of the podcast where we talk about today's featured cookbook. It's called What Do We Eat Now? A Guide to Wartime Housekeeping. This is by three women, Helen Robertson, Sarah McLeod, and Frances Preston. So this book is one of my favorites in my collection because it includes wartime management of family finances, tips on being economical and thrifty, nutrition education, everyday and party menus, recipes, and directions for canning. The wartime management section was really fascinating to me. It's basically just uh, financial advice on how to live on less and like it. (laughs) Um, A paragraph that stood out to me says, The women of America run the home budgets. They do about 85% of the family spending. They control over 60% of the savings accounts. Individually, women may not think their spending is important, but collectively it has a far-reaching effect. It is not a far cry from budgets to bonds, and the cumulative savings of the homemakers of America can contribute greatly to the success of the war savings stamp and bond program. I really like this because 
it points out to women that they may not realize they actually have a lot of power with their money and they can have a really huge effect on the success of the war. When it comes to saving costs on food, it says the homemaker with a family of five to feed buys and prepares close to five tons of food a year. Under normal conditions, she often asks herself, what should we have for dinner? If she is interested in giving her family enjoyable and interesting meals. Faced with rising prices, rationing, and the need of using substitutes, she asks in addition, what do we eat now? By relinquishing some of our present food habits, accepting gracefully proper substitutes, using seasonable foods, and simplifying our meals, we can put some control on our food budgets. If we use imagination and ingenuity, we can still serve interesting and nourishing meals which spell fun and enjoyment. I really love this paragraph too because it's not only, you know, kind of explaining the plight of the the homemaker in wartime, but it's also kind of a little bit of a advice or a lecture of we need to relinquish our present food habits and accept gracefully the substitutes that we have to deal with. And this point is really driven home in the patriotic economy section of the book, where it says, We have been the richest people in the world. We have been used to an abundance and variety of goods in our homes and in the shops. As less and less goods are manufactured for civilian use, it will be increasingly difficult to make normal replacements. We must treat our present supplies with care, learn how to mend and patch skillfully, and get value out of all of our materials. As time goes on, we will feel wartime pinches sharply, we must resurrect and put into full use the basic thrift principles, which were practiced by our forebears and helped to make the strong America of today. That just sums it up for you, folks. Another fantastic part of this book is the planning menu section. I love looking at menus. I don't know what it is about it. Maybe because it's a weakness of mine, meaning I'm not good at it. <laughs> so I just love seeing all the different ideas they have. And when I read through these menus, I'm like, wow, that sounds like such a filling meal. And... It makes me want to just go right now and cook that whole menu. It's not quite as simple as that. But the cool thing about this section is that they have pinch pennies with safe economics column. And on the other side, they have another column that's called false economies. So it's kind of like a do and don't section. One thing that I that stood out to me was their tip for safe economics was cook vegetables in small amounts of water. Use the water in soups, gravies, and cream sauces. And then the false economy is to throw down the drain the water in which vegetables are cooked. This stood out to me because I've known for quite some time from studying rationing that you don't throw away the water you cooked your vegetables in. That's a huge no-no. Not only is it you're throwing away flavor you can use in soups, but you're throwing away vitamins. So I always think of this when I throw that water down the drain. <laughs> I feel guilty because I know this about wartime cooking. I feel like I should be following that. I'm, I'm still thinking that I will. I think I need to save my water, put it in a jar in the fridge, and then use it to make like a vegetable soup. That's just so smart. The other thing that stood out to me was their safe economics is for eggs. Plan to use the whole egg. When only the yolk is needed in a recipe, make a meringue of the white or add the white or a yolk to cream sauce. This happens to me all the time because when I make ration recipes, sometimes it just calls for egg white or sometimes it just calls for an egg yolk and then I'm left with the extra... And it usually goes bad and I have to throw it away. So that's my bad. <laughs> um, I'd like to be better about this. So I should just make a meringue. Why not make a pie? Uh, the false economy that I found was a little funny. I think this definitely applies to us today. The false economy is to pay a higher price for the color of the egg. 
Brown and white eggs are of equal value. For someone who's kept chickens, I know that doesn't matter the color of the shell, the egg inside is the same. But I think we fall for that trap, don't we? Like brown eggs, they just look more like country and authentic or something, not mass produced as much as white eggs. But really, guys, they're all the same. Anyway, lots of really fun tips in here and things like no-nos that we should not do. (laughs) Just really great to read through. The cool thing about their menus is that these are very carefully crafted menus. There's a section in here that talks all about the nutrition, all the vitamins that our bodies need, why we need them. And these menus are designed to make sure you get every part of those nutrients in your day. Finally, we get to the recipes. I'm very excited to share these with you. When I flip through ration books, I always look for the recipes that kind of catch my eye. But for this cookbook, three recipes really stood out to me. And I kind of wanted to make a a little meal of it for you guys so that uh, you could try out three different recipes and then supplement with some vegetables that you like or something like that. So first up is the sausage and vegetable loaf. This is one and a half pounds of pork sausage, breadcrumbs, egg, milk, uncooked carrots, uncooked celery, and finely chopped apple. I thought that sounded really good. So I made this and I only had a pound of pork sausage and a half, I used a half pound of turkey sausage because that's what I had. And I think that actually turned out well because it wasn't quite as fatty. This was one of those recipes that really surprised me. It was very good, but you know, I cut myself a slab uh, like an inch thick, like I normally do with, you know, regular meatloaf. And this was not one of those recipes you can do that with, because if you think about it, it's just sausage with some veggies and an apple thrown in there. You know, sausage is a really intense flavor. So I could have definitely gone with half that amount and it would have been just fine. So the servings on this could definitely be a lot smaller, which is good because then it stretches farther, you know, stronger flavored things. You don't eat as much of it. All right. The second recipe is cherry aid. This uses cherry juice, apple juice or fruit nectar, orange juice, lemon juice, honey to sweeten. And then you can use a quart of ice water or ginger ale. And then the last thing is fresh mint. Now, fresh mint to me is seems to be like a, I don't know, just like garnish, you know. But for this recipe, it went from, oh, this is really nice to, wow, this is really refreshing. My kids really like this drink. I think it was a really great success. I have never had cherryade before. So this this was a nice change from the standard like lemonade kind of thing. All right. Finally is the graham cracker cake. I just made this tonight. So I had it nice and warm from the pan. And the interesting thing about this cake is that it uses 30 graham crackers rolled fine, then baking powder, salt, butter, sugar, two egg yolks, milk, and then the two egg whites, which you whip separately and fold into the cake. Now, the thing, the the dilemma I've always faced with graham crackers and ration recipes is they say 30 graham crackers. Well, what the heck does that mean? Does it mean the whole rectangle? Does it mean a square? How did they sell graham crackers back then? So I finally went and did the research. I looked up packages of graham crackers from that time period, and they're all square. They're not the big rectangles like we have now. So that told me 30 squares. And actually, it that was right, because I think if there was double that, it would not have turned out. The cake was really nice, but still kind of sweet. So it says you can serve it with uh, jelly filling, 
or a cream custard filling and then sprinkled with confectioner sugar. I ate it with jelly filling, but I think that was way too sweet. I think custard filling is definitely the way to go. You can check out the Victory Kitchen blog for images of today's featured cookbook and recipes. And like I said before, I'll leave the references on on my blog. I have learned a lot from these World War II cookbooks. I've also learned that they tell only half the story. I would like to invite you to share your family stories with me. Part of the reason why I started this podcast was so that I can help preserve homefront stories of women's experience in the kitchen, what they had to do to deal with rationing. So I would love to hear the stories and recipes that have been handed down in your family that I can share here on the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Bye.